Hey, I'm Jim. Hey, I'm Trevor. Hey, I'm Jerry. Hey, I'm Mark. This is Virginia. And we're Matigo. And you're listening to Music A to Z. 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 Hello and welcome to Music A to Z Podcast. I am Steve Ferguson. And I am Douglas Ferguson. How's it going, Doug? I am good. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great to hear. Yes. I, I think I think I pretty much you're you're sold on it, right? Like I bought I, I really sold that one. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I was just like, hey, he's pretty good. <laughs> good. Not bad. Uh, so Dear listener, you're like, where have you guys been? It's been a month. <laughs> wow. Has it been, wow. Has it been that long? It has been a month. Oh. Uh, there's a reason why it's been a month. Holy cow. Have we been busy? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, not, not just not just in prepara- preparation for the podcast, but, you know, we got other other projects we're working on. And also preparation for this podcast. But also preparation. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. How many studio albums is it total? 20 or 21. Yeah. Good grief. Yeah. We have two items of music news. I sent this to you. I think we were both shocked. Her Space Holidays released a new AP oh, by, yeah, yeah. by the name of Gravity. It's out now. That's yeah, right. it is. It just it just went out. I'm I was shocked. I was and like we were so sure that that Her Space Holiday was a retired name. It, like we knew uh, Mark Bianchi was going to continue to release music and do projects, but we thought that the moniker of Her Space Holiday and what that project entailed was done. Well, I think I think that at the time he thought that too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, he, he didn't <laughs> so. plan on retiring from music. He just, you know, was going to move on and do different things. Well, yeah, because right? the release of that self-titled album in 2011, it came with so much. Um, it came with so much finality because not only did he release that, but he released basically his entire back catalog on Bandcamp and sold off all the remaining like physical albums that he had. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of like, yeah, I'm just I'm just putting her space holiday behind me, moving forward with music uh, in, in different directions. And here we are, uh, the beginning of 2018. Boom. Her space holiday is back. For more information, listen to our H is for Her Space Holiday episode, which Mark Bianchi himself did listen to. That's right. He seemed very appreciative of it. Yeah, he offered some feedback. And although I don't want to make this claim, I am going to make it that perhaps we had a hand in allowing him to reevaluate the Her Space Holiday label. Um, (laughs) Well, I can't say that definitively. (laughs) I can't say it definitively either. But I think I'll just say it out loud anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can say it. You can say it for sure. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. <laughs> you nope. Can, um, but you Check can. it out, guys. It's up on uh, Bandcamp now. Her Space Holidays EP Gravity. Uh, I only heard the first song that he kind of released as a teaser. Oh, Wounded. Yeah. Yeah, which I liked. So. Well, you know what's interesting is, uh, is it Wounded? I heard a version of that before. Mm. Uh, on YouTube, there's a Japan single by by it was under his name mark bianchi Mm -hmm. and i couldn't find for the life of me it anywhere else apart from like this really obscure like japanese website i guess a different version of wounded Hmm. and they they're very they're very different there's a very different take on the same on the same lyrics basically but uh it's cool to kind of like listen to and contrast and and kind of like each one has kind of like the pros and cons 
of like, oh, here's why I, I like this one, but this one is also also good, but for different reasons. I don't know. It just hmm. it's on. Uh, if you want to hear that one, uh, you could just look at Mark Bianchi Wounded on YouTube. All right. Okay. Well, 2018. Up to your old tricks, I see. Front woman for the Cranberries, Dolores or or O'Rourden, died quite suddenly. Oh, that's uh, right. Uh, I didn't. Last I heard, I did. They didn't have a an official reason. No, and actually, uh, I was just before we started, just taking a quick look as well. And they, I, she's been buried and all this sort of stuff. But it looks like they're not going to release anything till April. Interestingly enough, oh, okay. But um, there apparently there is no reason to suspect foul play. But she was young, really. She was definitely too young to just like yeah. She was. She's. Uh, I want to say. In her forties. Those forties. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah, like like way too young to die suddenly. Like yeah, I don't know. That's, that's it was very sad because you know uh, I mean I didn't listen to a lot of Cranberries, but I listened to enough, and you know they had those 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 big hits in the nineties, um, Linger and Zombie and mm-hmm. yeah, Poor Dolores. Also, you know, just like culturally, like what are the the big Irish bands? You know, like yeah, you know, like I, I think they they did leave a, a pretty significant impact on uh, the music scene for a while there. Oh, for sure, for yeah. sure. Let's get right into things. We're in a new round of the alphabet. Yes, we are. We did our A's, mm-hmm. and now it's time for our B's. Who are we covering, Doug? Today we are covering the Pantheon. <laughs> <laughs> the entire discography of the Bee Gees. let you know i contacted disco ben my friend from high school yeah and i said uh hey man i I didn't even actually outright say it i just posted a picture that was uh from a promotional uh concert promotion ad for the bg's tour of their album trafalgar and i just posted that and i said hey man we're getting around to it if you have any thoughts we'll read out for the show and he said uh not nothing that i could type out succinctly basically and i said well you know, how, how about, you know, something for, like, feedback or whatever? And, and basically, he declined to to give his two cents as mm. he was worried that it would take us a couple hours to completely read out, which I believe. I've never known anyone to be as devoted to the Bee Gees as Disco Ben. Disco Ben gave me a... quite a few years ago now. He gave me uh, two two CDs, two sampler CDs of 
not even necessarily his favorite BG songs, but a showcase of the diversity of their work. And I remember yeah, at the time uh-huh. being just absolutely shocked. It was four, four decades worth of material. Yeah. And he was very selective and very careful uh, with with showing showing that diversity of sound. And um, that kind of put the nugget in my head back then about one day exploring their discography. But it was such an intimidating prospect. As with bands this size, like we like with Led Zeppelin, I think we've made the conscious decision, also to save time, to not really go into their biography and their history. They are, it's so well known and so publicized that even if you, dear listener, you're like, actually, I don't know that much about the Bee Gees, Steve. Why, why don't you tell us? I'm just going to tell you right now. Go find a VH1 special. Go type in Bee Gees biography into YouTube. You will get, I'm sure, a dozen hits right then and there. I'm sure you could even go, hey, Siri, on your phone. Yeah, tell me. And then I'll, I'll just go like, and then you'll find whatever you need. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> do that exactly. Yeah. Um, Actually, please, let, if you do that, let me know what you find. Because <laughs> okay. I, I don't have an iPhone, so I can't use Siri. So there is a wealth of material and uh, about their about their biography and their history. So this is gonna this show is going to be about us and our feelings about their albums. This is just going to be a review. And, you know, of course, with, with a band that's this well-known and this long historyed, I'm also worried about, like, getting something wrong. Okay, yeah. You know, as well. <clears throat> and then, then Disco will have lots to say in the comments. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm always... Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm always worried about getting something wrong. But when you have a band that there's so much information out there, and sometimes when a band's been around long enough, there's contradictory information as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly with, with bands like Led Zeppelin and, and Nirvana and such, I mean, sometimes you'll get... As the years go on, and the Beatles is a good example you will get information that contradicts earlier information. That happens. And when you have a band that th- that's this huge, it's like, I'm just going to direct you straight to the sources. And we're going to talk about their many, 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 many albums. But first, there are bands that started out as, as the Bee Gees, anyways. Mm-hmm. They're a band that started out in the 60s. That's correct. So, Doug. <clears throat> so that means that I'm going to test out my theory that every band that has that came out... In the 60s, 70s, or 80s, has at least six degrees of separation from King Crimson. Now, I, I asked Doug, actually, was it just yesterday that we spoke? Or the day before? Um, uh, it was yesterday. And, I, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm all ready to go. I'm like, oh great, did you get your King Crimson connection? And he's like, I'm not ready to go I'm yet. Like, I'm almost there. <laughs> I'm almost there. And I was surprised because I actually found a couple. Oh, you did? Um, okay. But there was... I, it was really late at night when I finally did my digging, so I, I, I settled at one. <laughs> so uh, I guess we could share a few. Uh, yeah, sure. So, but why don't you go first? Cause, and, and bear in mind, Doug has far more experience into uh, into investigating these, so... That's true. That's true. Well, you know, actually, this one I found actually to be pretty challenging. I wound up looking through a lot of names trying to find a connection, but I did find one. The producer on their album, on their album Mr. Natural, mm-hmm. Arif Mardin... I want to say his name is pronounced, but I could be saying it wrong. He was a very prolific producer. Mm. Uh, he also produced albums for some of the following artists. Hall and Oates, uh, uh, Phil Collins, and David Bowie. And Hall and Oates and Phil Collins... Well, okay, Hall and Oates worked directly with Robert Fripp, the main guitarist of King Crimson. Uh, mm-hmm. Or rather, the Daryl Hall portion of Hall and Oates. As Fripp produced his first solo album. 
and also I think he contributed to uh, Exposure, Robert Fripp's solo album. Uh, also, Phil Collins played drums on Robert, Robert Fripp's uh, solo album, Exposure. So there's that. And David Bowie, uh, there's like three or four members of King Crimson who have worked with David Bowie. So the it's only like uh, three degrees, basically. Arif Martin, and then to Phil Collins, David Bowie, and Daryl Hall. So that, that is my connection. Um, I was, that, you seem surprised by that one, so there, I guess you found some different ones? Well, the Bee Gees, in the later portions of their career, sorry, I've got pages and pages and pages of, of Bee Gees notes. Yeah, so do I. Off Living Eyes, they worked, the, uh, one of the guitarists on Living Eyes is Don Felder of the Eagles, or sorry, oh. of Eagles. Hmm. And then uh, ESP, no. the next album, Featured Glenn Frey of Eagles. So they, they had quite a collaboration with Eagles. Eagles' frontman was Don Headley. In Don Headley's uh, Boys of Summer single, do you know who played percussion? Was it Bill Bruford? Ian Wallace. Oh, Ian, oh, Ian Wallace. Ian Wallace. Well, there we go. Huh? Yeah. That's a cool connection. There's a, there's a, uh, a less obvious connection. Yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting enough. Ian and Wallace played drums. I want to say it was on Islands by King Crimson. Um, uh, it was either Islands or Lizard, but I'm going to lean toward Islands. I, I could look it up now, but but I'm sitting down. So, yep, it is on Islands. Although you got to watch out. There's more than one Ian Wallace out there. Yeah, no doubt. All right, yeah, and undoubtedly many, many, many more. There could, yeah, we'd have to, we'd have to dig. We could dig more and find more connections. But I feel like you know those aren't bad. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I got, I got, I got, I think we should preface uh, the the reviews a little bit, yeah. saying that I kind of feel like this is definitely not the ideal way to listen to the Bee Gees, mm. because basically it's like it's like cramming for an exam, mm. and, and I, I and you know this is I guess is always the danger of, of approaching uh, music in this sort of uh, in this co- context like through a podcast and trying to. Trying to basically like take on an entire discography, it's 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 you know it's danger, it's hazard, it's a hazard of the job. Um, sure, but, but like, by the same token, we are then also able to give like a sort of a first impression yes. review as well, uh, and a fairly honest one. And um, yeah, as it is, uh, yeah, tackling on twenty one, twenty two albums in a short amount of time, even though it took us o- over a month, mm-hmm. to, it still is a lot to take on, a lot of music to listen to, and. Do you know what I noticed? For a band this prolific, I was legitimately surprised at how few compilation and live albums there were. You know, I didn't really look into those at all. There's not that many, all things considered. I mean, there's some that are like the complete BG sort of thing. But, yeah, yeah. But compared with some of the other bands that we've looked at, um, there's really not that many. Okay. Yeah, I like Alan Parsons. <laughs> they, had more, they had more compilations than there were studio albums. Although, I don't think they're the only one that we've, we've covered that has had that issue. Maybe Led Zeppelin as well, actually. Yeah, but Les Zeppelin doesn't have a huge discography, though. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway. So, okay. First off, the Bee Gees, this is one of, the, one of the things that I encountered. There's a lot of disagreement as to how they got their name, and it seems like the story changes, like, every decade. Right. For example, our mom will swear up and down that it's just, uh, it's, it's, it stands for Brothers Gibb. However, there's sources that are, that it's not. There's sources that, that, that states that it's named after... A producer and Barry Gibb and and their combined initials and this and that and t- I, I guarantee you will find contradictory sources for this. But here's the Bee Gees are are not and have not always been 
just Barry, Robin, and Murray Skibb. It later became the three of them, they were the Bee Gees. But uh, as we'll cover briefly, as the band evolved and changed, who were the Bee Gees changed as well? And at one point, there was the Bee Gees and the Bee Gees band. And there was a distinction between them, even though there was core Bee Gees band members and core Bee Gees members. And Wow! So they are... Technically British from Manchester. No, technically. <laughs> well, they moved to Australia at a very young age. Oh, of course. Then they stayed in Australia. Uh, and in the 50s, they, they were part of a kid's band named the Rattlesnakes. And it was a skiffle band, which is like a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of, uh, kind of uh, if um, before punk rock was able to be punk rock, you got a bunch of kids together to play around with folk sounding instruments and sort of... It was... And then the skiffle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? But then they wound up going back to the UK. They seem to be a very musical family. Music ran in their blood. The Bee Gees themselves, Maurice, Barry, and Robin, seems to be predestined to uh, always be in music. It just, you just, just going through their through their biography. It just seemed like that was their that was their lot in life, and that was that was their talent. Did you cover Doug 1965's Bee Gees scene and play 14 Barry Gibsons? Actually, you know what? I didn't do that one. That's okay. That one's kind of tenuous. It was basically a bunch of like songs that Barry Gibb had uh, had written, and the other Gibbs had kind of like backed him up and played instruments for and stuff. And then they eventually released it on an album. What a, it was an Australian release, release, uh, kind of like a Frank Sinatra album. It was more of just a collection of singles that had been done over years. Right. The my big takeaway from this is that at the age of nineteen, Barry Gibb was already an accomplished songwriter. Hmm. Yeah, there was there was high demand for for this collection of singles, and it did very well. It might have done okay internationally. Uh, that's actually part of the reason why it, it's kind of like tenuous as to how many albums they have released because it depends on where. Uh, because mm-hmm. this, if you're in Australia, this is the Bee Gees' first album. Uh, if you're in the U.S., no, you know. So there's 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 some discrepancies. That was basically my takeaway. It's a very the but as a an album full of basically singles. There's a lot of variation in, in sound, and a lot of things sound really... Some songs sound really raw, and some sound, songs sound pretty well produced. But let's get into their best understood as first album release. November 1966's Spicks and Specs. Yeah, just to be sure... These aren't racial slurs, are they? <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know. I really don't think so. Okay. I'm just trying to think of like what on earth they could even be talking about. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Spicks and Specs. Yeah. All right. Uh, not bad, but very typical 60s pop. Mm. Kind of, <laughs> the risk of sounding insulting, kind of an unremarkable Beatles impersonation. Uh, and I feel like the, at this one, they're um, at their best when they sound, uh, when they sound less like the Beatles. So uh, the one I, I highlighted for that was Born a Man. Hmm. I, yeah, I just feel like that was one of the, the stronger tracks that uh, kind of showcased maybe what their their actual identity was rather than just sort of fitting into that, that mold. It is actually interesting. There was, because the Beatles were so popular at this time, when they began to get, the Bee Gees began to get international success, there was a conspiracy theory floating around mm-hmm. that this was the Beatles just releasing different, quote-unquote, different music under a different name, right. and that BG stood for Beatles Group. <laughs> Conspiracies. Paul yeah. is dead. Paul is dead. 
Yeah. yeah. Now the thing is, like the, the obviously the Bee Gees aren't the only ones who are guilty of sounding like the Beatles. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, if you go to there's so many bands because the Beatles were just they were just so big, like it they changed the face of music. Everyone had to like try and sound sound like them, and so like you know I don't fault them for it, but uh, but at the same time it would it would be I think that it would be best for them to kind of carve out their own identity. Yeah, I know that there's been there were a handful of songs that I knew from the '60s that I'm like I just thought they were the Beatles, and then more and more I find out oh no that one's by the Animals or that one's by mm. the Turtles or <laughs> you know whatever. <laughs> I mean that's pretty typical for anything in the in the decade, right? Like when something big takes over, there's always going to be impersonators. Who, oh, for sure, who'll get one or two hits in there as well. If you want to take a look at like uh, something comparable now, or actually this is even still a few years old when Katy Perry got big. There was a lot of Katy Perry esque. I think the one actually that has that has lasted the longest is probably Jesse J. But you know they they have a very similar look and a very similar sound and it's just it's just trends in music. It just tends to be how it is. Yeah, yeah. Comparisons to Simon and Garfunkel as, as well are understandable. It's a very folk rock vibe. It, they get a bit silly at times. Play down uh, is a, one of the examples I noticed. I found listening to their discography when they get kind of silly, I really get on board with them. It doesn't happen often, but whenever they release a song that sounds and is silly, I'm totally on board with it. <laughs> yeah, because it sounds like they're having fun. Exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, like, make no mistake, uh, the Bee Gees perfected, as far as I'm concerned, a love ballad uh, because they just sell it. But, you know, it's nice that not every song has to be, you know, a soulful wailing towards a woman. Pretty big splash in Australia, but uh, to be honest, not one that I would go back and revisit. Myself, really? Yeah. Yeah. However, it was big enough that they're like, let's go back to England. So they did. And the very next year, by the way, their output is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's another thing is that they just they release so many albums in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even when they've slowed down a little bit in the later years, if you kind of think about it, it's like, oh, you know, they still release something every few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They released an album called BG's First, which, again, depending mm-hmm. on how you want to look at it, is their first release or isn't. Um, I mean, my first note for that one was, um, no, it isn't. (laughs) But, you know, who who am I to disagree with the Bee Gees? It was their first international release, and they picked up a man called Vince Maloney on lead guitar. Uh, It's a psychedelic album, as if the the cover didn't immediately give it away. But it's it's not a huge departure album. Uh, Something I noticed with the Bee Gees is whenever they change their sound, it's not drastic they tend to just move into the sounds mm-hmm. in stages which again given their output makes some sense they also picked up colin peterson on drums who would stay with them for quite a while i like this better this sound better than just the straight sort of folky ballad and stuff <clears throat> uh i liked the psychedelic it's a shame to me that they didn't do more psychedelic because i actually thought they did it pretty well the beatles comparisons are, are still pretty strong one of their big hits, and justifiably so, is New York Mining Disaster 1941, which sounds like so far away ago, but I mean, it was only like 25 years before this song was released. They were already trying some new things, even with the psychedelic. There's uh, Every Christian Lionhearted Man Will Show You has medieval chants <laughs> in it, which is interesting, and something they'll explore again in the future. Close Another Door, the last track. Uh, I thought was really good, a really good closing track. And this is not something I can say for every Bee Gees album. The, a good majority of them don't have particularly strong closing tracks, 
But some do, and this would be one of them. Now I kind of feel like I want to revisit this one because <clears throat> I can't remember a damn thing from it. <laughs> you, at the very least, New York mining disaster in 1941, although the um, there's something about it that really strikes a chord because, again, the Bee Gees are really good about, like, again, they're, they just, they do love ballads so well so often that when you come across a song where the content is about something a lot more complex about a historical event and the people who were affected at the time, it really stands out. And um, there, there's an honesty to the to the lyrics for that one. Hmm. Well, yeah, I don't know. The problem is uh, for me, what I what I wrote down is that I, I just didn't really have a lot of notes because I felt it really different, different didn't differ much from the previous album. Hmm. And now you were talking about psychedelic vibes and... Uh, Again, not a lot. Right. But... So uh, I, I wish I'm, they explored I'm like, more. I'm like, what did we listen to the same album? Like, what am <laughs> I? What, what, I, what did I miss? So yeah, I kind of feel like I should go back and check it out again. It was only six, seven months later that they released. Uh, so in February of 1968, Horizontal. I have a very interesting. I won't even say history, but a very a double impression of Horizontal. I first listened to Horizontal at work while I was doing this, doing uh, the cast schedule. And I was like, hey, this is really good. But I was at work and it was kind of on in the background. Then when I revisited it later, uh, when taking down notes and stuff like it, I didn't feel it anymore. Really? Yeah, I wasn't. I was just like, no, I'm, I'm not getting it. And I, I don't know what the difference is, to be honest. But I, I, the second time listening to it, I just, I didn't, I wasn't getting it anymore. With the, the first song, World, it just opened up really kind of cheesy with that Mellotron. The psychedelic, the stuff that I was hoping they'd explore more, was gone. The last few tracks, uh, Changes Made and Horizontal, the last two tracks are great. But they're at the very end of the album. And they're the highlights. So if you're listening to this album start to finish, you know, most people I would argue would be checked out by the time those songs are there. Hmm. And my one of my early notes was, guys, cheer up. <laughs> cheer up oh this isn't the worst of it no <laughs> i know but but you know and although this isn't a necessarily a uh a slant on the uh on the music the cover art does look like a serious portrait i'm just gonna throw that out there oh yeah yeah okay that's that one yeah, yeah. i mean maybe i don't know or maybe serious portraits took a note from this and started looking like this so horizontal i i don't know i don't know it's I'm very, I have very mixed feelings about it. Well, you know, music is one of those things where sometimes, like, what you, how you feel at it, as when you're listening to it, can really influence how you, how you hear it, right? Because hmm. uh, I, I wrote that this is um, it's actually one where I start to feel them carve out their own identity, and more, and they're now they're just they actually feel like they're more than just another Beatles ripoff band. Mm-hmm. Um, this one feels bigger and less like fluff songs. I felt. Uh, and also more more orchestral components and more emotional songwriting, which I guess, you know, kind of, you know, it doesn't contradict what you're saying about cheering up. <laughs> it is very emotional songwriting. But at the same time, it does still kind of fit into the um, the 60s pop mold. But this one does, at least it felt more ambitious to me. Hmm. So I, I, I mean, I think I appreciated this one a bit more, but I, you know, I don't know if I listened to it more than once. So maybe, maybe... See, I, I say, I say, maybe I should give it another listen, but it's like, uh, it's like uh, I don't, I, I can't, I can't li- re-listen to every Bee Gees album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, it's just gonna, it's, it might sour the experience. So yeah, I, I felt horizontal was a, a stronger piece, but yeah, the cover art is, is not good. <laughs> but you know, the, but at the same time, like 
No, there's not tons of great cover art from that point in time, I think. Or no, 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 wait, in the late 60s, no. No, by the late 60s, they were, it was improving a lot. Because once you had guys like, you know, the, the Beatles were starting to make more interesting cover art, and and, uh, and guys like uh, the Moody Blues were coming out, and they their cover art was always awesome. So never mind, no excuses. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, again, just for the records, technically at this point, the Bee Gees weren't just Barry, Robin, and Maurice, but Colin Peterson on the drums and Vince Vince Maloney with guitar and some occasional other instruments as well. Right. They were Bee Gees members. Yeah. And they were for quite, for, for quite a while. Yeah, the um, portraits of the band have five guys. So. Okay, actually, I do say quite a while, but I mean quite a while in terms of album releases, not necessarily length of time. Yeah, it's true. It was only a few years, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, that's that's the thing, too, is that like you keep seeing these names over and over again. They're like, wow, they were Bee Gees for a while, but then you, you got to think of how frequently they were releasing albums. And indeed, that same year, September of 68, they released their next album, Idea. Which, although still cheesy, much better cover art. Mm, yeah. Little, yeah, that was not too bad. Yeah. And stuff. Yes. I like the colors, the color scheme at least. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's the thing. The other one looks so drab. It does, actually. <laughs> and yeah. this one is uh, more vibrant. And, it, and, you know, honestly, I think it, it's, you know, a part of a part of me says it shouldn't influence the music. But on the other hand, it's like if you're, if you're you've got a project, you've got, mm-hmm. you've got a piece of art. Of art, arguably, it does reflect in part, you know, what you're trying to convey on a visual aesthetic level. Mm-hmm. And a lot of bands knew this. That's why that they would include like like interesting art and stuff. So I mean, something that's nice and bright and stands out, and you know. So my feelings about idea is I'm starting to really feel some of that AM soft rock stuff. <laughs> uh, this seems like a very logical follow up to horizontal. However, I felt some of the tracks were better than the best tracks of the last album. Such a shame, for example. Very upbeat, great song uh, with harmonica. I really like Such a Shame. It might be might be my favorite BG song to uh, up to that point. Might be. The title track is really good too. And, and then I noticed to any time that the BGs get a beat in this album, I find myself engaged. See, this one didn't work for me. Sure, they don't sound like the Beatles so much anymore, but <laughs> but this album is just soaked. And sappy melodrama. <laughs> you see, okay, I'll, I'm going to be honest. This is I was I'm totally on board with what you're saying here because they they do it so often these yeah. melodramatic, heartfelt, soulful things. But then I realized they were tremendously popular, and they ha- they were doing it well. I guess. And who am I to say this is the music that they should have been doing? Because clearly. It was what they were good at and what they was making them popular. Well, I mean, you know, they can do what they can make whatever music that they want to, or, or and obviously they did. Yeah, but it doesn't mean I gotta like it. No, nope, uh, fair, fair. It's just it's all it's all a bit much, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just it's just like guys, take tone it down a bit. Holy moly! Except the track that really stood out to me that I really liked was Kilborn Towers. Oh, Kil- Kilburn, Kilburn Towers. That's a pretty good song. It's much more chill. It's very engaging, and it just feels more genuine than much of the album. Like I, I that's, that's the song I kind of walked away from, going like, "Oh yeah," but I'm really glad I heard that song. Hmm. Yeah. Some of these, um, I will note, um, as a contrast to their later albums, a lot of these tracks actually do tend to be fairly short. Yeah. So some of the albums are really short too. Yeah. Like there's, uh, I don't remember. Well, I guess we'll get to that one whenever when I find it. 
But there's like one that's like just over half an hour. I was noticing your Kilburn Towers is just clocks at just over two minutes. Just really late in the album. So, <laughs> yeah. I do remember it was quite late. It was quite late in the album. You know, it's sometimes all you need is a song that's about two minutes long, you know? If oh, sure. So you know he's dragging it on if it... Although, I don't I can't. I can't remember specifically if I would have preferred it was longer or not. But anyway, I like the song. Not, what, six months later. Jeez, Louise. March of 1969. They released their next album, Odessa. Yeah, and this one's a double album. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it's 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 like twice twice the Bee Gees. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about Odessa? I say this one's a real mixed bag. Some great highlights. Uh, Suddenly, Edison, and the instrumentals are pretty good. Uh, actually, yeah, the instrumentals are some of the major highlights. Give Your Best has um, some country twang. I do not approve. <laughs> um, uh, also, the, the album's a rocky start. The track, Odessa, this, or, or how do you say it? O- Odessa? 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 Anyways, that's, it opens with the title track. Mm-hmm. To say that the vocals are a bit much would be an understatement. Maybe it's because it's Robin <laughs> who's doing the vocals. It is just shrill. Mm. And I hate it. Mm. I just hate that song. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, I just think it sounds so bad. It's just, it, I just listened to it, I'm like, oh, shut up. I just couldn't take it. And, and I remember, like, I had I had uh, the the track okay, on, on YouTube, and then one album finished, and then it kind of led back, back into Odyssey. Yeah. And I was, I was busy working, so I didn't know what was happening until I heard the shrill vocals and I'm like, oh, it's back to Odessa. <laughs> I can't I can't do it. I, it was anyways, it was I uh, yeah, that so I mean but it's a very bad first impression to the album because it's most of it isn't that bad. It's not that shrill. It's just yeah, that one that one song. Uh, but anyways, yeah, after that there's some good songs. So so just get past it, everybody. So anyways, the but the album as a whole, I think it, I give it major credit for ambition. It was it was very ambitious. So sorry. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I get it. I just don't feel the same venom that you do. No, no, but I, I mean, you're... I get it. Okay, yeah. Well, you know. But anyways, yeah. So again, you know, some credit credit for ambition. <laughs> they produced this with Roger Stigwood, who would produce quite a bit of Bee Gees, and it does show. But there's quite a bit of soft rock going on here, which isn't inherently bad. I agree. Suddenly is a fantastic. Fantastic uh, song, possibly my favorite song on the album, which then continues into the curious sort of dual song, Whisper Whisper. It's, it's kind of like two songs. It's like one song and then it drops off and it's another song, but it carries on the same sort of content, really. And 7C Symphony is a great instrumental. So I, I actually do find it to be kind of a mixed bag as well, uh, to be honest. There is some legitimately really good material on here. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. While touring for Odessa, the Bee Gees lose a member. And it's Robin. Wah, wah. Robin leaves. Yeah, he's like, I'm tired of being a gib. Yeah. I'm out of here. <laughs> All right. So there was a song on Bee Gees first called Cucumber Castle. Yes. And they're like, wow, you know what? Let's go make a comedy special. Nice one-hour TV comedy special oh, called, Cucumber, <laughs> called Cucumber Castle. And they all get together, and there's uh, a bunch of celebrity uh, guest spots on it, like Lulu, who sang The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, she's oh, on yeah. it. Blind Faith are on it, which includes Eric Clapton. And uh, Mick Jagger. They all make little little cameos in this nice little sort of musical comedy hour. The king 
Being a bit of an old thespian took a long time to die. But Frederick and Marmaduke could not wait and immediately proclaimed themselves king of jelly and king of cucumber. I haven't watched it due to time, but the album Cucumber Castle, released a year later, April 7, 1970, was basically incorporated songs from that. And you'll notice, if you look at the cover, it's Maurice and Barry on the cover, but no Robin, because Robin had left. Yes. Now, Colin Peterson, their drummer, who was a child actor in Australia, was quote-unquote fired. Oh, and, and this again, this is one of those contradictory sort of pieces of information sort of thing, because as time went on, the story changed as to the circumstances behind it. Okay. So I read one thing, and then I read another thing, and then I read another thing. But but <clears throat> apparently, allegedly, he had, he was starting to miss recordings. And he didn't want to participate in the film, which surprised everyone. Like, hey, you used to do this all the time. Why don't you come and join us in this silly little film? Derp, derp, derp. And mm-hmm. Colin's just like, no thanks. And so, Those days are behind me. Well, you got wonder, right? <laughs> uh, and so he basically, he was fired. And there may or may not have been a lawsuit involved. Uh, the, the most recent thing I read was that he did, however, stay on good terms with them, with the Bee Gees, okay. for quite a long time, which then, of course, casts doubt on how messy him leaving the Bee Gees was. It's just like as if they were in a feud, but then afterwards, like, ah, water under the bridge. I mean, so I don't know. But needless to say, Colin Peterson was out and was replaced in the process by drummer Terry Cox. Cucumber Castle, the album... For such a tumultuous time that was going on, and like this was a this was a heavy year with a lot of music work, a lot of work for this TV special. Robin has left, all this stuff going on, and they're still writing. It's kind of a lighthearted album, but not lighthearted, hee 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 ha ha ha, but lighthearted like lovey dovey. But the fact that this is for a comedy special, I mean, at times there's some songs that are kind of comedic, you know, there's some some, some goofy tracks. Mm-hmm. But there's so many soulful romantic ballads in here. It's like this was hold on, this was for a comedy special. Like what's what's going on? Uh, um, and it, it's like a goofy medieval sort of thing too. There, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you see it on the cover art. Exactly. Just, yeah. So I'm tremendously because it, it's on the surface it looks like they just want to try something new and go out there and do something different. But upon listening to the album, a lot of it was more of the same. Was more of a, what we kind of got from the Bee Gees in the past. I actually have uh, remarkably similar notes. Mm. Um, I, I, yeah, there's some highlights. It's a bit more fun, like, uh, oh, uh, how do I say that? Is it 1010 or, or oh, no, oh, no, I-O-I-O. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. it was, oh, yeah. It was I-O-I-O. <laughs> I-O-I-O, yeah, yeah. Uh, and The Lord. Uh, so, yeah, those are those are a lot of fun. I didn't, I, I like those songs. Those ones seem to, to relate, really, to the... Uh what was what was going on yeah but there's yeah there's no serious departure stylistically still a lot of melodramatic pop songs mm-hmm. and i still feel like they're at best when they're a little more subdued at this point um like in the song my thing i think that's a great song all right and, and another album another album in 1970 so mm-hmm. it, it didn't take they didn't take uh they didn't take too long to get uh, back in the studio yes uh the next album is two years on which I don't know why they call it that because it's not two years on no, by not, any stretch. No, I don't. No, I, I actually flipped. don't know there's the no significance of the title. <clears throat> two years on from idea, I, I guess. I don't know, but I got really confused about reading about what happened. Robin came back, mm-hmm. but then Barry left. But then Barry came back. 
and then something and like there was there was like a lot of question as to like as to, like who was in the BGs and what was going on and people leave and people come back and but I've, by the end of it by the end of it they released a statement like after all that mess they released a statement that very explicitly said us three BGs were back together again and we are never going to separate ever again they held true to that they held true to that I almost imagine like a little comedy special where like they're in a room. It's like a sitcom setup, and Robin comes. He's like, "I'm back, guys." And then Barry's like, "I'm out of here," and he leaves. <laughs> and then like you know, you, you just hear some fussing around, and then he opens the door. He's like, "I'm back, guys." <laughs> like just, like this is really like cheesy said. That's just how I imagined it. I'm sure it was a little different. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> but they held true to never splitting up again. I think you know they must have had a talk about like, hey, we're either. We're either in on this or we're not. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think they, they were loving what they were doing. Vince Maloney at this point is gone. Now, they replaced him with Jeff... Or not replaced him, but they replaced Terry Cox with uh, Jeff Bridgeford, who would stay with them for quite a while as as their drummer. In this one, they went back a step, I felt, to a more stripped-down sort of folk rock sort of thing going mm-hmm. on. The track Back Home was a really nice change of pace from that sort of samey sound that they were... That they were engaging in. But I did notice that it was outrageously short at under two minutes. There were two other highlights for me. Lonely Days was definitely a highlight. Uh, Laid On Me was too, even though it's kind of like a country western song. It was such such a change from most of the other album that, you know, I was alright with it. Sure. And I don't want to sound dispar- disparaging towards uh, the Bee Gees. This is an era of Bee Gees that I'm going to admit I'm just not a big fan of. Yeah, but they, it's, but they went through several eras, so... Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this is also a problem when you release so many albums mm. in such a short amount of time, is that, uh, do you really have time to craft uh, a distinct identity between the albums? Mm. And and this isn't just, just a problem with the Bee Gees, I noticed this uh, with a lot of bands who have, a, like, a huge output, in that it is, you know, they... Sometimes you need some time to let your creative ideas stretch out and be something different right mm-hmm. not too much time you two no 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 <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to come up with original notes for each album mm. um because you know there's only so many times where you can say well you know i like this song and well you know still got that kind of like folk pop sound no 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 uh you know it's gonna sound like a broken record but this one i i think that uh it does get pretty good near the end i also I actually i also like uh lay it on me and uh, every second, every minute also uh, hit a good chord for me. But yeah, I was I was a little bit like, I, I don't remember anything that like really hit me the wrong way, but it was a lot sure. of, a lot of like, mm, yeah, you know, it's just uh, another month, another album. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say another year, another album, because it was the second one of that year. So yeah. Yeah. I guess we're on the same page. All right. Cool. October, 1805. Uh, oh, wow, just off, just off the coast of Spain. The French and the Spanish join forces, and they say, "We know the British fleet is coming through here. Let's paste them. Let's just blow them out of the water. We we outman them like five to one. Let's let's do this." The typical maneuver for naval warfare at the time was for the ships to run parallel to each other, so they could all bring their guns up and shoot at each other, and whoever sank first lost. Mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> a dangerous maneuver. They're like, "All right, well, let's just see how it goes." <laughs> the the commander of the British fleet, he saw these outrageous, outrageously huge armada built up of both the French and the Spanish and saw how how crazy outnumbered he was and came up with an extremely unorthodox idea. 
He said, okay, let's divide and conquer. I'm going to split my fleets into two, and instead of running parallel, we're going to run perpendicular, and we're going to cut right, cut right through them. And his men were like, well, if we're running perpendicular, uh, how are we going to shoot them? And he says, well, in order to avoid us, like, literally cutting through them and collision, you know, doing a collision course, they're going to have to bank, and as they're banking, we shoot them. And this maneuver was outrageously successful. And even though he was vast outnumbered, Lord Nelson won the Battle of Trafalgar. Outrageously won. The French and the Spanish took amazing losses. So we come to our next Bee Gees album. 1971, September 1971, not even a year later, of Trafalgar. And I feel like they were going for... Like, like I thought, no, this is interesting. I feel like they were going for a concept album. I, I feel like they were going... Like, the idea that I got was that someone who's who's in a relationship is at a disadvantage all the time and and can never seem to re- really gain any footing in the relationship and always seems to be the one trod down, but keeps pursuing on relentlessly because he loves her so much. This would be interesting, but this is the subject of a lot of BG songs anyways <laughs> beforehand, so um, it... it it, it wasn't new ground that they were necessarily covering, right? But I I appreciate the I appreciate the attempt. And again, this is this is pretty explicit based on the title and the cover art that this was kind of what they were going for. Just like you know the the underdog coming up and uh, succeeding regardless. From the get go, it felt like we're into the seventies and we're going into seventies AM soft rock. They brought on Alan Kendall, who has despite the amount of work he's done, he has a shockingly... So, he's, who is he? Uh, he's, he was their guitarist at okay. this point. He has a yeah. shockingly underwhelming Wikipedia page. Oh, okay. Well. Shockingly. For a man who's accomplished so much. Oh. There were some highlights. It's Just the Way is a great rock track. And Walking Back to Waterloo, although fairly late in the album, I thought was a, was a really good song. It feels a bit more grand in scale to me. And it also has a much-needed gentleness to it. I feel like the vocals are improving. Not often are they, do they sound so shrill, which is good. Nice mix of vocal harmonies, guitar songs, and orchestral arrangements. Not a lot of super memorable songs, though. So I feel like the album kind of accomplishes a lot, but at the same time, you don't walk away with like a lot of great tracks, which is an interesting compromise. Dearest is uh, not good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's basically my, my notes. <laughs> um, if we feel like we're just breezing through this, why, you know, don't, you, why don't you come on and you host? <laughs> it, it, it just it, it feels weird that like this was this is so many so many days of work just writing all these notes out, and we're just like we we are kind of breezing through it, and it's like oh, but like it's not like I have tons more to say. <laughs> Bear in mind, I also want to point out this has only been six years. Yeah, this has been six. years years that's astounding and it does also kind of shed light as to why you know some of it again like why some of it sounds kind of kind of samey and stuff like that it's it's only been six years (sighs) it's outrageous outrageous and crazy yeah so we plow on forward to october of 1972 uh, for the album to whom it may concern now this is the point where things change a little bit so in terms of uh lineup so alan kendall is and jeff Bridgeford are still part of the band, at least for a little while. Jeff Bridgeford, he leaves partway through, and Clem Catini 
comes comes on, but they're no longer considered Bee Gees members. Now, by definition, the Bee Gees are Barry, Robin, and Maurice and are credited as such on the album. Those are the Bee Gees. Everybody else coming on at this point are guest musicians, session musicians, which is fine. That happens all the time. That is fairly yeah. normal yeah. in the industry. But I think at this, like when they when Jeff Bridgeford left, I think it, it, I think it just became kind of taxing. One might say to constantly be including someone as a full member of the band and then having them go, and including a new person and then having them go, when really the core of the band, the ones doing most most if not all of the writing, with exception, were the members of the Bee Gees, and usually just Barry, not always, but usually just Barry. Now the reviews of this. Interestingly, the reviews of this uh, this album at the time and even now were fairly mixed. And kind of my feelings are along the same way, too. Some reviewers were saying, yeah, you know, this is this is good, but this is all that the Bee Gees do. And they, they do it well, but I don't really expect anything else from them. It's a Bee Gees album sort of thing. It's pleasant to listen to, but I'm not feeling challenged. That, that was... That was the, the, the common sentiment at the time. And, you know, I, I kind of feel the same way. Even now with hindsight, I understand exactly wh- why they were saying that. <laughs> the track, I held a party. <laughs> because, first off, uh, again, whenever they get silly, even a little silly, I'm totally on board. <laughs> I, I work with it. I also it. think you, like, you connected deeply I, with the track. I absolutely <laughs> do. On a personal level. I absolutely do. Like, well, I had another party, party and no one came. came. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. <laughs> what a guy. Bad Bad Dreams is a classic rock track. It's not a folk rock or love ballad or whatever. It's, it's like a classic rock. Great track. Every time they throw one of these into their albums... I wonder why they never did more of these kind of tracks because they do them well. They're really great. They got a great strong guitar and and a good beat and uh, compelling lyrics and stuff. Sweet Song of Summer, I really, I thought had a great sound to it as well. Actually, I was feeling the groove of this one. I definitely hear an improvement, at the very least, into the production quality of the album. It's just, it sounds clearer. So you can hear that sort of step out of the 60s into the 70s. At least through uh, through the fact that I think production techniques were uh, were getting clearer and and more advanced. Um, I mean, I don't know the nuances of like what that era was like uh, as far as production goes, but I, I heard it. I heard an improvement here. Maybe it was just a different producer. I don't know. No, same same producer. Okay, well uh, then. Stigwood, yeah, yeah well, well, he did a good job. Yeah, my main note was also that uh, "Bad Bad Dreams" is a great track. I think so. That is a consensus. Everyone check out "Bad Bad Dreams." But yeah, you know, beyond that. I, I left space to write more. Apparently, I didn't. So, yeah. I, I don't know. I felt that this was a more positive for me than perhaps it was for you and, and critics at the time. Yeah. Three months later. I don't believe this, guys. January 1973. Again, three months. Three months. We get what is apparently a departure album from a production standpoint. Uh, Life in a Tin Can. And the first thing I noticed when it started getting going, I was like, yes, more upbeat. The first couple tracks are more upbeat. Ah, oh, I can really get get on with this. Uh, then by the time it's four tracks in, I'm like, I take it back. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we lost the upbeat stuff. There's a bit of country guitar here, but I found this one shockingly unmemorable. Just wasn't really anything in here that 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 really hooked me. 
Life in a tin can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I said uh, nothing to write home about. It's very short and doesn't feel like it has much significance in their catalog. And and, and, for, and it's like, guys, it's only been like three months. Why? Like, I've, I've, like they were just pushing, I guess, right? <clears throat> yeah. I felt it was a step backwards. Um, and I'm having a tough time finding any standout tracks. But at least, like, good or bad. So I, there not, there's nothing that I, I hated. But nothing that I like really liked. So it was just sort of it was it's a this is an extremely neutral experience, <laughs> which you know at that point it's like well what's the point? I I mean I feel like they were going for something. They left IBC Studios in the UK, which is where they done all their recording, and they went to LA to like record their next album in LA. It's not just location, guys. That uh, that that makes an album. I I think it needed time to breathe. I think I think you needed to. Uh, I don't know. Something needed to be different besides location. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, there's just nothing really great. And to be honest, as well, the reviews at the time were very much the same way. It's almost overexposure, really. But okay. Then we do a year and a half. A year and a half goes by. Great. Fantastic. And we come to Mr. Natural in June of 1974. Mr. Natural... Like this is this is when I said that the BGs they don't take a drastic shift in sound, they kind of grow into a sound and you can hear them grow into a sound. This is the the album that epitomizes it for me. This is a transition album between the first era of the BGs and the next era of the BGs, and it's all it's starting to blend in funk. It's starting to blend in classic R and B without abandoning their old sounds and stuff. But I think. This was great. This was a great direction for them to be to be moving in. Down the road, at, was it funky, super high energy? Dogs, great harmonizing with the instrumentation going in. I Can't Let You Go and Heavy Breathing are great, great, solid, solid tracks. My only real complaint was the last track had a lot of love last night, which I'm... Mm, mm, it had a lot of love last night, I guess. It was still kind of a blast song anyway. Sounded like it could have been a sexy, sexy song. Oh, really? <clears throat> yeah, missed opportunity, guys. You could have, you could have laid it on nice and thick. <laughs> <laughs> so this this was this was good. This to me was a step in the right direction, but it also kind of showed the process of how they were taking that step. They also brought on uh, a new drummer, Dennis Bryan, who would be with them for quite some time. Would you um, would you describe him as a menace? No, I would not. Poor Dennis. Oh, oh well. Oh. I I'm definitely hearing the some evolution. Yeah, I, I noted as well that this is where they really start to enter the seventies. That the seventies is like it's like taking shape, and they're taking notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's much more funky, which is always which is always a good thing. Remember, guys, if, if your album needs anything, it might be more funk. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I, I actually didn't take too many notes of that one. I again, I left a little space to take more notes. Apparently, I didn't. Do it. <laughs> I called up my dad yesterday. Our dad, our father. Yeah, I was gonna say he's like, oh, I know him. Yeah, and I said, uh, so, so, Dad, like, tell me about the Bee Gees. Tell me about the Bee Gees. He says, and I, and I, well, then I followed up immediately and I said, and not just the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, you know, what were your experiences with them? He says, I didn't really have any, you know, and I'm, and I'm like, I was surprised. I was like, well, you know, they were all through your childhood. And he's like, yeah, I, I never got re really into them. And he mentions that our grandfather had this next album, Main Course, on vinyl. And that's, that's what oh, he had okay. for Bee Gees. So June 1975. Main course, hello, disco. Here we go. We start off with a fantastic, amazing song, Nights on Broadway. 
Did you ever see the Saturday Night Live sketch with uh, Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake, uh, the Barry Gibb talk show? I did. Uh, wasted opportunity if there ever was one. <laughs> sure. Uh, I think I in just, part because yeah. uh, Jimmy Fallon can't stop laughing at his own jokes. Yeah, it's true. That's why he, that's why he works better as a late night talk show person rather than a comedic actor mm. because... You know, you just have that flexibility to kind of like laugh at things when you're when you're a talk show host. Yeah, I will agree. In part because his impression of Barry isn't great. He can kind of do the voice, but he he puts a psychotic sort of twinge on Barry Gibb that's it's like where did you pull that from like you know there's a lot of artists out there that you can that you can easily put a sort of psych- psychotic twist on Barry Gibb is not really one of them however Justin Timberlake's performance as like a burnt out Robin Gibb fantastic like he, he you look at him he's just and I think I think a part Justin Timberlake like knew how to portray this as a as a prolific artist as well he's just he's so burnt out <laughs> so that's the and plus the theme song to that uh the very Gibb talk show yeah is the night on broadway uh song oh, okay, so that's okay. that's why i always think of it yeah that that's whole sketch it feels like like oh this is a this is a funny idea for a sketch and then they didn't really do much with it <laughs> yeah it's like oh okay well you know Guess you guys tried. <laughs> <laughs> they followed up with Jive Talking, which I was like, oh, I know this song. <laughs> I know this song actually really well. You know, you just hear sometimes, you hear these things oh, on yeah, the radio, yeah. and it's like, oh, Jive Talking. And my, you know what, honestly, this is the first Bee Gees album I listened to, and I'm just like, this is a great album. I really like Main Course. I think it's a great album. And it's it's constructed fairly well, too. It starts kind of slowing down at the end to kind of like a, you know, for like a dance album. Now it's kind of going into like the slow dance sort of stuff at the end. There is one note I had because I'm legitimately unsure about what they're trying to communicate here. Now, remember, these guys are British and spent some time growing up in Australia. Mm-hmm. So with the track Fanny... Be tender with my love. Are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> are you like? Did you get kicked in the nuts or something? And I somehow uh, missed this this uh, this <laughs> crucial piece of information. In North America, you know, fanny's just not that remarkable word, but like it's for like these guys, it's almost like writing a song called Badge. <laughs> Be tender with my love. Ten- yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's like um. Uh, and and if maybe there's some significance within the song's lyrics, I did not find them. So I'm kind of I'm kind of curious what happened with that one. But uh, legitimately, I I really enjoyed main course. Hmm. I said, "Whoa, jive talking <laughs> is by the Bee Gees." And then I, and then I was like, "Wait a minute. I think I I think I've made this re- revelation before." Because <laughs> the, the, like the first I was like, "Whoa, I forgot that this is but I didn't know this was by the Bee Gees." And then I'm like. Maybe I did. Mm. Maybe I did know this was by the Bee Gees. But it's just, uh, yeah, it's just one of those songs that you, you, you hear. It's mm-hmm. like, there's a few 70s songs that are, uh, like, yes, this is this is one of the, the songs of disco. And Jive Talking, I feel, is one of them. And it's a great track. Yeah, there are full-on 70s in this album. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a pretty good album, actually. I, I like the blending of the you know, singer-songwriter stuff from the 60s, but with a much more upbeat 70s backdrop. Um, and also, like, thank God, 
I feel like the falsetto blends so much better with the music now. Mm-hmm. Like there, that that's the sound. It's it doesn't sound like it's like um I don't know. Like sometimes in the sixties, it felt like to me like I was just laying down and relaxing, and then somebody came up behind me and started going. Ah! <laughs> like it's like oh my god, <laughs> but <laughs> but here it doesn't feel that way at all. Yeah. <laughs> so this was the first album to feature keyboardist Blue Weaver, who would be with them for quite some time. Blue Weaver also has a criminally, criminally underutilized Wikipedia page. Oh, at yeah. the very least, he gets a photo in Wikipedia. However, who the hell put this photo up? That's not the photo to put. Up. Oh, it's not even. It's like green screened and improperly. And it's yeah, <laughs> I, it's like the background. His glasses are in the are background, and that's that's yeah, that's a bad picture. Like who did this for a man who basically like that that keyboard sound through like that almost defined disco? He has a horrific, a horrifically underutilized, almost insulting Wikipedia entry. Jeez, this is a man who worked with Gladys Knight. And John Cougar Mellencamp and Pet Shop Boys, and someone's got like a like a paragraph of his biography and a really really crappy photo. I feel bad for for some of these guys. You know, a lot of these guys, some of these guys were the unsung heroes who helped shape pop music. And how many more of these guys are there out there who like you know were re- like really crafted definitive sounds of you know people's childhoods and people's adolescence and stuff who then get like a. Oh yeah, this person collaborated with Pet Shop Boys, you know, and uh, I don't know. It's almost too bad. Uh, but Blue Weaver, look him up, and this, and he he hangs on with them for quite a while. Uh, just over a year later, thank you guys for taking a, at least a bit more time to work things out. We <laughs> September nineteen seventy six, we get Children of the World, which is not a Michael Jackson album. Yeah, uh, <laughs> feels like it, doesn't it? It does. It does almost with a uh, very very corny. Cheese ball cover art. I mean, uh, oh yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's it's some of the cover arts that, like they just look like a three goofballs playing dress up. They're one of the biggest bands in the world, though, and so. But I don't know. I guess it's the part, some of the visual aesthetic of pop music at the time. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's, it's a time and place. <laughs> um, it opens up with with one of the seminal tracks for VGs. You should be dancing with uh, Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills and Nash on percussion. And this one. Like, this is shocking. Beforehand, you didn't get a lot of musicians who worked with the BJs, just a few. And in this one, it's just tons and tons and tons and tons. And we get the distinction now between BGs and the BGs band. And the BGs bands now at this point are defined as Alan Kendall, still the guitarist, Blue Weaver, and Dennis Bryan on drums. So there's BGs, BGs band, and then a bunch of studio musicians who would then come in and help them out. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots for this one. There's some ups and downs to this album. They've uh, reapproached their ballads. <laughs> Boy, they love their ballads. They do. Yeah. Uh, however, Lovers is hilarious. And again, whenever they get silly, I'm fully on board. I'm 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 on top of that. I'm like, yes. Be silly. Be silly, BGs. Be silly. And then the final track, the closing track, self-titled, uh, the title track, Children of the World is a great, great closer. Thank you, guys. I love great closing tracks. So it's not as strong as main course, but the highlights are pretty high. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't bury the lead. Uh, it, the Bee Gees are full disco now, and there's no going back. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's uh, this album's, pr- I feel, pretty pretty cheesy all the way through. Like, it's, it's, it's a super cheesy album. There's no way around it. 
sometimes painfully sappy, as you noticed with the ballads, and but also sometimes super fun. So when it's fun, I am definitely on board. And yeah, I, and of course, you know, you should be dancing. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah, yeah that you know that's that's important. <laughs> Anyways, that's all I gotta say. So the three uh the three fellows, perhaps some of the Bee Gees band as well, we're up uh up recording some uh some music for their next album. Just you know preliminary stages. They were recorded uh, a song called "If I Can't Have You," "Night Fever," and "More Than a Woman." And then they were approached by their producer, Stigwood, who said, look, there's a there's gonna, this little film, it's low budget, it's called Tribal Rights of a Saturday Night. Do you guys have any songs that we can stick on? And they're like, well, you know, we're in the middle of writing some some stuff, but uh, I, I don't know if we're, if we're too interested. While that was going on, the film was in production, and anytime John Travolta is on screen on this movie which came to be known as Saturday Night Fever he's very good yeah he's the best hey man he's crazy he's the king out there John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever he was dancing to Stevie Wonder and Busk Eggs those were the songs he was dancing to no Bee Gees tracks and then in post-production uh, the Bee Gees were reapproached, and they said and they said yeah sure yeah we, we have some songs we also wrote the song called Saturday Night but there's tons of songs called Saturday Night and so that evolved into Staying Alive Bada Bing Bada Boom we get November 1977, we get the album Saturday Night Fever, which it's a soundtrack album. Yeah. And it's not completely Bee Gees, but it is, but they're on the cover? There's a lot of Bee Gees, though. The original soundtrack music of Saturday Night Fever, featuring new songs written and performed by the Bee Gees, including the number one hit single, How Deep Is Your Love, and the hit singles Night Fever, and Staying Alive. A sensational two-record set available on RSO Records and Tapes. Okay. Well, here, let me, well, I got what the, I have it right here. You have it? Oh, okay. This, oh, where is it? Where, where is it? Oh, here it is. Okay. This actually, I don't know if this is like a first pressing, but this is the copy that our grandparents had. Oh. The, when they were giving away all the records. Uh, well, they're selling them, but they get, they gave they gave me a few. By the way, I haven't seen this movie to be honest. Um, Nor have I. Okay. I just have a feeling like I just can't imagine watching it and being able to like take it seriously. <laughs> I don't know. Well, Maybe it's good. They did the entirety of side A, but if I can't have you, someone else sang it. Yvonne Element, she sang it, but it was it was a BJ song. Yeah. So more than a woman night fever. Uh, also. Um, Jive Talking makes an appearance on the soundtrack as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I noticed um, um, side, side C has two older songs. You should be dancing in Jive Talking. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's like the songs that you, people probably know the Bee Gees best for are on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. I, I think it's still the best-selling soundtrack of all time. Uh, it went six times platinum. Yeah. Woo! It was top of the charts for 24 weeks, but it was on, like, that's top of the char- charts. It was on Billboard's charts for 120 weeks. Yeah. Wow. So that's impressive. You got to admit. I you know I've, I've had a I've had a strange relationship with this album, in that the first few times I, I I listened to it and I was just like I don't know if I like it <laughs> I, I I just it's so, it's so disco and 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 I, I just I just it didn't really sit well with me but then then I listened to it again because I didn't want to get rid of it because I feel like this is like to even have this is like an important piece of music history especially um, if it's like I mean again I don't yeah. know exactly what, when it's from. But, uh, but we'll the games on it. 
Cool. Yeah, and also, you know, there were there were enough good tracks that it's like, well, I'll probably listen to it again at some point. And I remember listening to it again, and I was like, okay, you know what, this this actually isn't too bad. I, I can get into it, you know, it's not, it's, and it's not just Staying Alive. Like, I mean, of course, you know, <clears throat> let's be honest, Staying Alive is, like, the probably the song of the decade. Mm. Like, if you think if you think disco, you probably think, like, either Dancing Queen or Staying Alive. Disco Inferno, maybe. Disco, oh, yeah, or maybe, uh, maybe September by mm. the... But, you know, like, if, if you had to, like, list the top... You know, th- th- this is, like, a whole genre of music and a whole decade's worth of music. If you had to list ten disco tracks... That yeah. were that you walk that you can walk away from and say like these are the definitive disco tracks. There's no way you're going to leave "Staying Alive" out of there. No, I I can't imagine anyone who would. And yeah, it's kind of almost hard to listen to it objectively. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's so ingrained in the pop culture. Really. Yeah, yeah, really. It's just it's it, you know instantly it, I instantly get the some of the footage from the music video of them like strutting around <laughs> this like the ruins for some reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? Yeah, they're, they're like they're strutting around in disco suits in like these these ruins. <laughs> like what a strange choice. Being really serious and then like suddenly being really goofy, kind of like poking their head out of windows and stuff like that. I'm like, what are you guys trying to do? <laughs> but. But it's now it's so iconic, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, again, also that, Bo- Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Blue Weaver, well, did the keyboards and the synth for these tracks, like, and that that can't be understated. Like a lot of that sound is just as much Alan Kendall, Blue Weaver, and Dennis Bryan as it is the other Bee Gees. So yeah, no, I'll agree. Um, it is hard to listen to it objectively, but truthfully, truthfully, I love Night Fever. I think that's a great song. I love Night Fever. So yeah, I am. Uh, I I have I have mixed feelings about the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack because I think maybe it's just like where my mind's at when I'm listening to it. I think that's what it kind of comes down to because I've had a great time listening to it. I've had a bad time listening to it, and uh, I think the most recent time I was somewhere in between, which yeah. is weird. How do you have a, t- uh, a a bad time listening to the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack? <laughs> maybe, maybe I was just a maybe I was just a big grumple fumple face that day. You know, not to use such harsh language around the kids and the kids listening. <laughs> we just lost half our audience. <laughs> I wanted to learn more about the Vichys, but he said grumble, grumble, grumble. So a year and a couple months go by. We go to February 1979 to the album "Spirits Have Flown," which, truthfully, is my four-year-old daughter's favorite Vichys album. Yeah, I was listening to it, and she really liked it a lot. She kept asking me, "What's this song called? What's this song called?" But then she wants to know why does the picture change. Because it was just, you know, the uh, very curious airbrush cover, uh, cover yeah, yeah. art. I said, well, they're all on the same same album. She didn't quite grasp that. But, yeah. Tragedy, the way it opens up, it's, to be honest, kind of cornball. It is... Uh, <laughs> Although the chorus is pretty good. However, then, oh, I, I, I'm certain you must have picked up on this. Love You Inside and Out, or Inside out is, uh, is on this album. Which one? Sorry. Love You Inside Out? The, the Feist covered it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, Feist did a fantastic version of it, but even this one is really good. It's a really good, nice uh, nice love song yeah. without being an, an overwrought ballad. And it's, it, uh, yeah, that's another song that uh, I knew by the Bee Gees before we got into this. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I did quite enjoy it. Lots of funk and disco continue in this one. And then the closing track, Until, is, is a minimalist track, but excellent. And so a great closing track, and and for 
for albums like disco albums that that were so produced and so like layered upon layered upon layered it was nice having this really minimalist gentle track gentle without being low you know low beat Mm -hmm. um really kind of cool cool track to end on so uh, all in all spirits have flown kind of comes in a little shaky but picks you up really quick and uh, has a great close i don't disagree necessarily but my, my note is, I get that they can sing really high, <laughs> but that doesn't mean they that they should all the time. You know, like with great power comes great responsibility. You know, you gotta you gotta know when to use use this uh, this power. Actually, I'm gonna agree with you from the get go because I find that when they sing really low, they have great voices. Yeah. When they when they when they hit those those sort of like tenor notes and stuff like that, I think they sound the best. You know, and and, and obviously they've used this falsetto really well in the past. Like sure. you can't deny like it should be dancing and do staying alive. Like the would those songs have worked nearly as well if they sang in the lower register? Maybe not. Uh, they, but there are times in this one where it doesn't work so great. But maybe they were so associated with the falsetto they felt they had to. Now that they were like suddenly the biggest band in the world, <laughs> you know. Now you you already named some of the, the better tracks. I'm going to name my least favorite one on here. Stop, think again. I don't think anything has been laid on so thick. (laughs) I don't think there's a single thing in the world that's been laid on so thick. (laughs) Sorry, that's all. That's all I had to say about that. But yeah, but uh, at the same time, yeah, some of those tracks are pretty good. Uh, I do really like the uh, Love You Inside Out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great, that's that's a classic for sure. All right, July 12th, 1979. Comiskey Park in Chicago, Illinois. There was a baseball game between the Chicago White Sox and the Detroit Tigers. Some idiot came up with this great promotional idea. Hey, at some point during during the the game, there was going to be a break, and someone said, we're going to have Disco Demolition Night. And we're going to blow up a bunch of disco albums... Because disco sucks. Oh, this is that iconic. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh. Came to the field, brought their own disco albums, lit things on fire, took baseball bats, jumped up and down, turned into a riot. <laughs> the fans simply wouldn't surrender the field for the second game. Now the police are out on the field. Boy, oh boy. They rode in on their horses, and the kids just ran for the hills. After nearly 40 minutes of mayhem, Comiskey Park's field was pockmarked with divots and debris. You go out there, you see puddles of where beer and, and stuff was wasted on the field. There was glass broken out there. It was, it was a mess. With the anti-disco revelers finally off the diamond, the grounds crew attempted to make the field playable. Even as Tigers manager Sparky Anderson argued it would be impossible to play. Doll's army had demolished disco, and in the process, Comiskey's field. Somewhere, somewhere around 30 people were injured during this riot. Mm. Uh, about 40 people were charged as the main instigators. It was so bad that the baseball game was technically canceled. Chicago forfeited due to it, so... Uh, no, it wasn't canceled. So Chicago forfeited, then Detroit's technically won. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They're like, uh, I don't know if we can play under these conditions. Basically, right? Well, what, you mean the big flaming pile of records in the middle of the field? Is that, was that the problem? <laughs> <laughs> With chance of disco sucks, disco sucks. This was not an isolated event, as, again, a couple DJs came up with this idea. And uh, before the actual event, a couple other DJs across the province, apparently, or across the country, Apparently, even in Seattle, said, hey, we're going to hold our own Disco Sucks event. You know, I don't uh, know if there's anything 
that's been uh, come since since then that's had such a backlash. Mm. You know, like there's been nothing quite. I mean, obviously, like people hated boy bands and like people make fun of Justin Bieber and like and all these other big pop phenomenons, but nothing that's inspired like just total destruction like this <laughs> you know and looking back i'm like man disco wasn't that bad <laughs> like, some of it was pretty cheeseball i get it but like really <laughs> you guys kind of took it a bit far so the white Sox officials hoped for a crowd of twenty thousand people which was usually they got fifteen thousand people but instead at least fifty thousand people oh came that, into the stadium that is a very different number. yeah it's a very different number my that's, apologies that's for even that. worse that's crazy and thousands mm-hmm. continue, apparently, apparently allegedly continued to sneak in after the gates were closed you kind of have to wonder was this really just about disco what's what was what was going on here i don't know i wasn't there but needless to say some people said that that was the day that was the night disco died given the release uh the releases for earth wind and fire that occurred afterwards i don't necessarily agree with that i mean yeah it's just to some bands disco never really died yeah saturday night fever soundtrack certainly was and some of the other bg's works certainly had a huge presence in the destroyed albums some donna summer stuff in there as well i guess it raises Um, the value of the ones that survived (laughs) i don't know right this this calling the Bee Gees were not unaware of this. Decided to move with a different direction. They took a couple of years off. Well, a couple of years off, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Which was, by the way, unprecedented for them. This is, to date, this was the longest release uh, delay between albums. Uh, and they came out with what is basically a rock album, Living Eyes. The problem was, even though you listen to this, this is not a disco album. A good many DJs and stations in the U.S. especially were super hesitant to play any BG singles because they didn't want to be associated with, you know, playing disco. Even though, again, how many disco albums did the BGs really have? Three or four? Really? I mean, they were making music long before disco existed. Mm-hmm. But they were synonymous with, with disco. Well, and like I said, you know, like... They- when you talk about the, some of the biggest disco hits of all time, Staying Alive is in there. Mm-hmm. And even to this day, that's still the song they're most known for. Despite the fact that it actually doesn't represent the bulk of their catalog. So, that's just... I mean, that's what happens when you have a hit that's that big. Mm-hmm. So, so I, this is them them trying to break the mold. And <clears throat> now we're going into a new era of Bee Gees. The Bee Gees band started th- recording this album with them. But by the time it was done, all three of them had left. As a point in music history, when compact discs were being developed, this was the first full album that was pressed onto a compact disc, not for sale, but for demo. Like, oh. this is a CD. Look at how much look at how much music it can hold and listen to the auto quality of it. This was the very first one. There's even a promotional picture of them holding their album, Living Eyes, as a CD. Hmm. Very kind of a cool thing. Uh, there's still some R&B influences. As I said earlier, Don Felder of Eagles, he played guitar on the He's a Liar, which is a, a dark and fun track. Crying Every Day is also a really good dark and fun track. Uh, when they really experiment with some of that that, in, that that rock, like that really strong rock, I think it sounds great. To date, it has a mixed reception and a mixed legacy. I liked this album. Uh, I didn't love it. I liked this album quite a bit, but I, sometimes the Bee Gees would 
be a little dismissive toward this album like oh we're trying to think we didn't find our footing quite so well but then a little bit later they would really statement like you know actually there's some really good moments to it so, mm-hmm. but other times they'd be a little more dismissive of it oh, you know so m- even by the Bee Gees themselves a mixed mixed sort of legacy but you know what i think as well it's tainted by the time period in that i think as musicians and artists they were always like they wanted to go in a different direction they wanted to try new things disco was over and they had this cloud of you guys are disco hanging over them, which must have been so frustrating. So, so frustrating. I mean, these got 65 and earlier, right? One of the things with the Bee Gees is that I don't, I don't think of them as a disco act anymore. After now reviewing the catalog, I think of them as a pop act. Mm-hmm. And they adapt to what pop is at the time. And, and in the 70s, disco was pop. And in the 60s, the Beatles sound was the pop. The folk rock kind of sound. And so, yeah, there's uh, 80, the, in, in 81, with Living Eyes, that was just sort of like, try, they were trying to reflect the pop of that era. Well, I guess I guess the pop of that era was starting to get into, like, new wave. So Starting to, yeah, you know, and sometimes, like, I would listen to it and I'd think, you know, there's a bit of Hall & Oates sort of stuff here. And yeah. I think it was just, it was a little, it was kind of loosely defined at that point, trying to find its footing. I think that's, I think that's the thing, is that it didn't really fit. Uh, it didn't really fit the disco, and it didn't really fit uh, what was actually popular at the time. So... It was, yeah, it was just kind of a an album that was that didn't know where it was trying to be. And that being said, like, I don't think it's a bad album. Mm. I think that it's it's just it's fine. It's much more mellow and restrained. I mean, they can still they can still holler from time to time, <laughs> but it often makes more sense when they do it in this album. So the album starts off very dramatically. Those first two songs and a few others uh, are very dramatic, and I th- uh, the last two as well. Um, I guess you you describe them as dark but fun, but uh, and I think that you know that that kind of is uh, is an interesting uh, contrast. Eh? Yeah, dark and fun. But yeah, definitely some highlights in this one. Uh, although the album does falter when it tries for romance, I felt like that's when they. I know that they they, they always have romance in their songs. There's 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 just there's always there's never an album of theirs that doesn't have some romantic th- songs. Sometimes it works, and I feel like. In this one, the it doesn't work as well. So, but yeah, the but the highlights are worth checking out mm-hmm. for sure. Then we have the then longest break between albums. Yeah, um, by, by quite a bit actually, like six years. Yeah. Six. Although I think in between this was a uh, "Staying Alive" soundtrack or something like that. Yes, that's right. But um, uh, I actually didn't listen to it to be to be honest. No, I didn't. I didn't either, and I don't think anybody really. I think because like it was, um, it, it wasn't as significant in the career as uh, Saturday Night Fever, so I didn't feel like I, I really had to listen to it. And again, they're only on side one, and then uh, Vince DiCola, really, really, I'm never going to give you up. Has or actually a couple of them have Vince DiCola on them as the writers. Wow, okay, hmm, maybe that's worth checking out after all. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> I, I, Vince DiCola. We, Steve and I know him best as the <laughs> composer for the Transformers, the movie soundtrack. And <clears throat> Rocky Four, I think. Four? The one with, uh, oh shoot. Uh, Ivan Drago. Uh, Dol- Dolph, Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren yeah. yeah, the one with Dolph Lundgren. He, he does the the, the, the the Ivan Drago soundtrack, the the theme of that character yeah. is very similar to the Unicron theme, apparently. <laughs> so, I'm actually kind of, you know, I, I, I overlooked this one, but I'm kind of curious to hear just, just what it sounds like. September 1987, ESP, and now I mean like 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 the cover art. We've gone we've gone full eighties. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. uh, not full cheesy eighties, but full no, no. full adult, you know, yeah, serious adult. I was gonna rock say like yeah, like Sting or something, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> actually, yes, I definitely see him in the vein of Sting. Yeah, uh, although I wouldn't say 
in sound, only in the cover art. Yeah. So this is this is more of their development of their of their sound, as uh, in the, the I guess you could call it almost their third their third era of Bee Gees. There's, there's sort of synth rock. Um, Glenn, like I said, Glenn Frey of Eagles is in is in this album, and this album contains you know has the glorious glorious drum machine. Um, <laughs> but I said, why not? They've earned it. They've, they've earned the drum they've, machine. They've earned using a drum machine. Uh, at this point, and if if only because it's got such a great sound to it, like like they use it really well, and they're like, you know, we've we've had other drummers, we've done drummers. Let's can we like, let's try a drum machine, right? Okay, go for it. I'm gonna be honest. I think this is a great album. I like ESP. It is definitely one of my favorites by them, for sure. The individual tracks aren't necessarily as strong, but the whole album is start to finish really good. Wow. They really went full eighties. <laughs> In that time they were gone, I think they like they studied it and they they're like, well, like what what is the eighties? What is it? What is it? The I think I think we found the eighties, and they and they put it into the album. <laughs> it's very dated, but that's not always a bad thing. Yeah, you know, like some of my favorite albums are dated albums, and their style translated strangely well into the eighties pop sound. Actually, they transitioned well. I I you know I think the time the time away. I think was very valuable for them to kind of reflect on where they want to take their music. And yeah, I thought, I thought it was pretty strong all in all. Cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 We can, we continue on our vein of intense adult eighties cover art. <laughs> With, uh, yeah. Yeah. Same, same vein, the same sort of vein, April, 1989, the album one. This is interesting because this album was shaped very strongly by the death of Andy Gibb. Uh, Andy had just died. And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, remorse and there's a lot of, of grappling with with those feelings on this album. Although I will say they have an, a track on this album called "Wish You Were Here." I was expecting it to be a cover of Pink Floyd's "Wish You Were Here," and I was a little disappointed it wasn't because this one, although it has similar sentiment, it didn't feel as strong. Like it just wasn't capturing the feeling. And I was very, I was actually looking forward to a cover of "Wish You Were Here" by the Bee Gees. Especially since the, the subject matter was resonant, it wasn't. A, it wouldn't have been just because we can recover it because we can. It would have been covering it because it was an emotion that they were genuinely feeling, and I, I was very curious to hear that. But I, but we didn't get that. I think that's the danger of naming a song something that you know. It, although, it's not an unusual sentiment to wish someone was here. Like once, once somebody writes the ultimate track with that name. You're, you're going to be instantly carrying the baggage of like the comparison. Mm-hmm. So like, and you know, there's there's no. There's no better song called Wish You Were Here than Pink Floyd's, right? <laughs> so it's it's not like you're going to like write one to top it. <laughs> you and, know? and curiously, they acknowledged that when they wrote Staying Alive. Because it was originally called Saturday Night. But they, they felt you know there were too many songs called Saturday Night out there. So why... So, I mean, they were aware of that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> this is a melancholic album, but also still an 80s rock album. Uh, it's My Neighborhood is good, pretty catchy album, and Tokyo Nights is super quotable and, and, uh, and super catchy as well. Not as strong as ESP, but I really like the sentiment behind the album, and it is a very personal album. Mm-hmm. It uh, sounds to me more refined and more restrained. And, yeah, it's interesting that the sound of this album, to me... I feel it's aged better than ESP. Mm. 
but I also don't like it as much as ESP. <laughs> so again, like I said, you know, just sounding dated isn't necessarily a bad thing. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I definitely I agree is that there's uh, there's definitely a different emotion behind it, and it's I I, yeah, I don't have any problems with uh, with them kind of going down this direction. Uh, a couple years later, March of 1991, we get High Civilization, to which uh, to which I said, what a 90s cover. What a 90s album. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because the early 90s Mm. and the late 90s are so distinct from each other. Oh, yeah. And I was like, what what happened in between? (laughs) 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 What... What on earth was uh, was going on in the mid '90s that made such a drastic change? <laughs> um, but yeah, this is this is definitely 1991. Mm-hmm. Through and through, uh, it's a dancey album. Uh, when he's gone, great song. That's fun. The songs are tend to be a little longer. Like we're actually starting to get to the point of the Bee Gees career where the songs uh, are tend to be like four to five minutes. So they're they're starting to linger. Actually, not unlike Queen, really. It's just you know the, the longer they were making music, the longer the songs became. I said this is all in all a fun sort of uh, synth rock album a lot of times. Party With No Name could be a Duran Duran track. Then I, upon listening to it, I was like, this could be a Duran Duran album, really. But yeah, High Civilization, all things considered, pretty good, pretty fun. Got a lot of that energy back again. I don't know if I agree with the Duran Duran statement myself. It just, it doesn't feel, well, maybe some tracks. I don't know. It feels like um, albums like Liberty. And well, you know, uh, I, big time. You know, the thing is, I, you know, I couldn't think of it. Duran Duran in the nineties. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, it's a good point. It's because, yeah, I, I, you know, you say Duran Duran, I instantly start thinking of like Rio and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. no, it's not that style. Duran Duran. Duran Duran changed a lot for the early nineties too. But anyway. it's just a reflection of, of pop music, or at the very least, pop music in the UK at the time. Yeah, this is a very. Okay, so my notes. Uh, this is a very early nineties. Got to give it to them. Uh, Got to give props for the fact that they were again able to adapt to the times. Uh, it's very poppy, but also has a quirky art- artisticness to it. Mm. Like they, they again, as you were saying with the longer songs, they were they're kind of able to kind of play around with it a bit more. They were less concerned about getting like a like a pop hit in there, despite the fact that they sound kind of like a pop. It's like pop album, mm-hmm. and I actually really like this album. I think it's my favorite of the bunch. Mm. I like it quite a bit. It makes me very nostalgic, despite the fact that I've never heard any of these songs before. <laughs> but it just captures that era so well. Of uh, like, yeah, actually, what it does remind me of uh, more than Duran Duran is is uh, Michael Jackson of the nineties. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm just like, oh wow, this is like this feels so much like that era of when I was I was so young. Yeah, so I, I just I, I instantly had this. I, I was instantly taken by it. Actually, I was I was quite impressed. And then that first song is so. It's very dramatic, very, um, I think it's the title track, High Civilization. Yeah, I, 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 got, I got quite attached to this one. I should go down so. to uh, to that record store by my work and see if they've got any, uh, he's got any Bee Gees in there. Probably does. It's worth checking out? Yeah. yeah. And this is uh, them in the era of the CD now. Like, uh, mm-hmm. by, by na- the 90s, CD was in full swing. Anyway, yeah, I so I, I actually... I actually strongly recommend High Civilization, and it doesn't really sound like any other any other album in the catalog either. So it's very it's very distinct. So we jump forward another two years. So mm. we're still we're still getting pretty consistent uh, consistent releases at this point. Two size isn't everything in September of nineteen ninety three. This, as with the last one, is a nineties pop album through and through. Any of that that rock of the of the eighties disco, of the seventies, and stuff like that is really gone here. Some of the single tracks are excellent, 
But overall, it's not as good as the last one. And in the middle of the album, it's kind of slumps. Um, the objective, apparently, while making this album was to return to a pre-Mr. Natural sound. Do I think they did that? No. But I can hear that they were certainly trying to be uh, maybe a little less, a little less produced, or something. There's, there's something about it that's, that's it. Just it, it wasn't quite as, as catchy and hooky. Hooky? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> why not? Why not? <laughs> that being said, one of my all-time favorite songs is on this album, and it's the last track or second to last track, depending on your release, called "Fallen Angel." I had similar notes, actually. Uh, not quite as alive as the last album was, how I put it. Mm. Um, it's the same genre, same style, but there's a, a lack of creative energy that the other one had. Um, yeah, that, that, that energy that was in the last one, there was, it was just it was distinct, and it was unique, and, and it worked for me. And this one just didn't have it. So it's like, it's like a, lot of the, a lot of the chips were in place, but there was just something else missing. I mean, it was okay, but I just kind of felt it was like just kind of bland, you know? It's kind of a kind of a shame because and also maybe my my expectations were a little higher because I liked the last one so much as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I did I didn't really feel sizes and everything. Uh, then we get March nineteen ninety seven, a few years later, still waters, and now we're, we've gone to like the other end of the spectrum as far as nineties cover art goes, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know we got yeah. the sort of the pastel sepia you know cover, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the very angular fonts and the profiles and stuff. That like one looks that. like a almost. Uh, you two in the eighties, though. Oh uh, you know? uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'll go there. Yeah. Um. You know they're wearing hats and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lots of way more producers on this album, which was strange because I mean they, they tend to be mostly self-produced or they had uh, Stigwood with them. Yeah, at this point, but, at this point, they were able to produce a lot of their own stuff. But okay, so I like this album, but I will admit it does not start very well. Uh, alone. Is, is a very down-tempo song that, that first like, oh, is this what the album's going to be like? But then it starts to get going. And then we got songs like Irresistible Force and Smoke and Mirrors, which are great songs that got great mixing, dramatic builds, a lot of great instrumentation. So some of this album is really good. Some of it is is fairly bland. But on the whole, fairly good. Fairly good, fairly good album. I didn't really feel that way. I felt it was a dud. Hmm. I... Like, it sounded more updated and up with the times and everything, but um, maybe it's just this... Maybe it's the kind of pop that it was trying to be of this time. Like, 97 was a really cool time for pop music. Mm. Uh, and they kind of captured the stuff that wasn't as interesting. The only album I could really compare it to in my mind that it reminded me of was, uh, you remember Robin? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Show me love. <laughs> show, show me life. life. Yeah, it, it reminded me of her debut album. Um, but not the better stuff mm. <laughs> of it. So I, I just, it was just this kind of like this '90s pop, late '90s pop that just wasn't, just wasn't what I was hoping for. It wasn't what I, wasn't, wasn't the stuff I liked from that era. And so not much in here caught my interest. I mean, maybe, maybe I should give it another go because you're saying that there was a some, it just had a bad start. And maybe that kind of like made my, that that definitely doesn't that help. made my first impression not so good. Uh, mm-hmm. But maybe if I give it another go, I can hear some of the tracks that are worthwhile that you're saying. It's also worth knowing this was their most successful album in 20 years. Really? Yeah. Still Waters? Mm-hmm. It was probably buoyed up by the fact that they were just inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hmm. So there's some renewed interest. But this also cemented that they had uh, successful chart-topping albums in f- like at least one for every four decades. For You know what I mean? So they had hmm. successful 
I mean, it's not like 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s at this point. It's not like albums like um, High Civilization were, they didn't do poorly. Maybe by by their standards. Because I remember, I read up that 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 one sold over a million copies. So it's not like they're... Oh, but Stillwater's did fantastic. It went like, uh, like shockingly well. Okay. Um, It went two times platinum in Australia. It went platinum in Canada. It went two times platinum in the U.S. Only gold in the U.K. That's... very surprising. Three times platinum in New Zealand. Okay, so it was like, it was a big deal. Was, wow. Yeah, it passed me by at the time, but uh, I mean, then again, it's not like I was, I was like what eleven years old. So yeah. what what did I know about the Bee Gees? It did get mixed reviews <clears throat> though, like very mixed reviews. Okay. Uh, Chicago Tribune really liked it. Rolling Stone, not a big fan. I mean, but you know, music critics. Oh fickle god, fickle folk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have much more uh, many more notes on that. So. Then there was like a live album, I think it was, uh, yeah, a live album, uh, and then we got, came to their last studio release, uh, 2001, April of 2001, this is where I came in, actually kind of a nice little cool cover, cover art, um, yeah, actually, I, I like it, I mean, again, a little bit reflective of the time, but, uh, but not in a bad way, yeah, this is where I came in, by the time we get to like the chorus and stuff, the stripped down acoustic guitar nature of it, my first thought was, this sounds like jars of clay, <laughs> you know, yeah. or some, something like that, you know? <laughs> and actually, on the whole, I'm not going to lie, this reminds me of, like, a pretty good Christian pop album, to be honest. And very refined. Like, they like at this point, making, like, super refined kanji pop music is second nature to them. And then, interestingly enough, halfway through the album, there's a song called Technicolor Dreams. And that is, like, a throwback track to a lot of their early, like, the earlier stuff, like, even in sound. It sounds like, a, like, almost like steel guitar and, and folk and, and there's and, a song by peter gabriel that reminds me of i think it's called excuse me yes excuse yeah absolutely me. yeah it's, it's yeah totally in that vein which which even that track was kind of a goofy um throwback track at that time which was like in the 70s so yeah it's or or you know um reminds me of what's that guy's name ralph something cocktail for two do you remember uh, i don't remember the name uh, okay but anyway ralph, his name was ralph shaw yeah. Anyways, but not that anyone's gonna get that because he's kind of an unknown artist. Oh, that 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 local guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That. Oh, well, did you buy that for Nate? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. That's a, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Actually, a fun little album. It is. But anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Any more notes that you were saying? Uh, just that it ends with like a killer rock track. Like it just kills it. Uh, at the end, I'm I'm and I'm such a sucker for when BGs do killer rock tracks because they do them really well. Hmm. Yeah, I think that this is. Uh, I mean, obviously they didn't know that this was gonna be their last album. No, but I think as a last album, it's it's a good send off. Um, I think it would be much much stronger than Still Waters as a as a as a farewell. Yeah, so I, I a good a good note to end off on. Uh, it's mostly very it's very consistent. Uh, sometimes a little too early two thousands pop slash boy bandish mm-hmm. occasionally, which is kind of weird thinking that they're like in their fifties or whatever. But you know what? If they can do it. <laughs> um, but you know that's again all that's what the Bee Gees did. They they adapted to the pop at the time, um, so it, it made sense. But at the same time, like this wasn't a terrible pop music. This was actually pretty good pop music. There's some highlights for sure. Uh, Man in the Middle, I really like. I thought that was one of the strong, strongest tracks. Um, really good. I, I also really enjoyed. Um, oh, I have it right here. Technicolor Dreams. I thought that was so super fun. Yeah. The title track is mostly good, except my only issue. Maybe it was just the, the recorded version I was here listening, but I just felt like the vocals weren't mixed very well. Mm. Uh, despite the fact that the song itself was good, it was well written and and charming, but like I don't know, it just needed more more work in the studio, maybe. But then again, I, I, maybe I, I don't know. It must have been, but it was the it was the music video version, like the Vivo. 
Hmm. So it's not like, I don't know, maybe that's just the way it sounds. So maybe I'm wrong, but I think that overall that that song would have benefited from a little more fine tuning in the studio because it could have been really good. Yeah. But yeah, overall, I think this is a, this is not a bad note to end off on. I, I actually like the album. Uh, 2003, Maurice died. Signed about a twisted intestine. Oof. Yeah, uh, very suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, yeah, because yeah, he wasn't that old. 53. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's younger than our, our dad's at, I think. <laughs> right. And then Robin died in 2012. Yeah, um, but yeah, and Robin and Maurice were uh, twins. twins. That's right. So it's it's kind of it's. I wonder what that would be like. You know, you spend your whole life with somebody, and then, I mean, I guess it's I guess it's something somebody everyone finds out eventually. But um, yeah, yeah, I I, I I can imagine it being a big shock, and I, I can also understand why they decided to retire the BGs after Maurice died, mm-hmm. um, because it's like, well, the agreement, like, was that it was the three of them, right? That was that was who the BGs were. And I know they they released some solo stuff after, or at least um, Barry did, mm-hmm. which I haven't listened to. Uh, he had a he had a studio album that he released very recently. Yeah, that's uh, it is kind of sad. It is uh, that you know I guess they they could have gone on longer. Yeah, <clears throat> that would have been cool because uh, I mean they managed to have five decades of recording, but only just only just did they sneak in in two thousand one. Yeah, they could have they could have uh, rounded out at least a decade. It's too bad. Well, we did it. <laughs> we we made it through. We listened we listened to the entire BG's catalog in like just over a month, I want to say. Yeah. Who we? Yeah. Maybe maybe more like 2 months. I don't know. Yeah. Do you want let's do some track recommendations. Let's let's do yeah. it. Why don't you go first? <clears throat> okay. I might be stealing this one from you, but I I actually decided to go with Technicolor Dreams. Okay. Um because it's fun, it's folky, a little honky tonky. And a nice throwback sound, and I think uh, they hit they hit it out of the park. I think that not everyone can do a track like this uh, and sell it, but they did. And uh, and it's also just a welcome change of pace for us placing the album. Like it's just it just it's just kind of in the middle and just gives it a different flow and, and it stands out as a unique entity in there. And I and I like it a lot. High Civilization from the from the album High Civilization because it ha, it is a, a really big, powerful sounding song, so very it like contrasts greatly the uh, the previous one, and um, yes, uh, dramatics dramatic sweeping and um, arguably one of the band's best tracks I would say. Yeah, and I'm going to go also I'm going to go with a classic everyone. I'm going to recommend Jive Talking. Yeah. <laughs> because, hey, do I even need to explain why I'm going to I gonna recommend Jive Talking? Jive Talking is great. It's like, you hear it, and instantly you just want to bob your head up and down and go, yeah. Jive Talking. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm all about it. I, I love it. I love it. You're like, what? I mean, you know, I don't love every, every everything disco. I, I have reservations about the genre at times. It's, it can be a little hammy. But songs like Jive Talking just make it all over. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway <laughs> Steve go for your track recommendations three songs three entirely different eras let's start off with from BG's first New York Mining Disaster 1941 it is super reflective of the time it was recorded in it is the music that was popular at the time but again as I said before what I found particularly gripping about it is instead of a soulful love ballad um, where you're pouring out your hearts to a woman um, or talking about how a woman's mistreated you or whatever 
instead we're dealing with a, a true story uh, about people who lost their lives during something that was driven by exploitation and real people and their experiences and their and their feelings and that's that's compelling stuff and it's an interesting bookmark in the Bee Gees uh, songwriting at the time. A very, very, a very strong course. The course I've always found is stronger than the verses. The verses tend to be fairly unremarkable in structure, but the the course, the way the course is saying, is particularly. So look it up. New York Mining Disaster, 1941. And hey, I know everybody knows the song, but it doesn't matter. We're doing it. Night Fever. I love Night Fever. I think Night Fever is a great song. There's a, there's a degree of restraint in this song that we won't necessarily hear in their other songs on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. It's a song that is a slow dance song, but it's still it's still a dance song. It's still a song that'll pull people to the dance floor. And uh, it's, I don't know, I feel like every part of it is, is just constructed so amazingly well. You've got Blue Weaver doing this fantastic set. You've got a very, very understated but uh, compelling drum beat. Uh, by Dennis Bryan. The guitars, the vocals, like all of it, just a pitch perfect disco pop song. I mean, second to Jack Top, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't they both be pitch perfect? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jack Talking, don't get me wrong. And then off of Size Into Everything, my favorite Bee Gees song is Fallen Angel. It's, it's another one of those sort of ballads, love songs or whatever, but the chorus is so catchy. Caroline, Fallen Angel. It's, it's, it's the voice too. When he does those lower register, uh, lower registers in his vocal performance, I find those super compelling. And it's, it's, it's more of an acknowledgement of, like he says, he's, he's lonely tonight. So it's, it's almost unrequited love, which is great. I, that's great subject matter, and and I, I feel like this one, so late in the career, still so good. They got it. Yeah. There you go. I feel like that captures a lot of the different sounds. Between the two of us, we capture a little bit of everything that the Bee Gees had to offer. Absolutely. So, good times. Whew. Did we decide what we wanted to do next week? I think what we said we were going to do is, uh, I only said, I, th- I think I mentioned this. We had two bands that we were going to... We were interested in for C, mm-hmm. and uh, we're, did we, we're gonna do a coin toss <laughs> on, uh, live on the show. Sweet, <laughs> are you up for that? I'm up for it. So uh, our two our two nominees. I've actually been I've listened to both just just in preparation. Chairlift mm-hmm. and Calm Trues. Because so, we're gonna because go, we did cover a couple older bands uh, that left kind of a legacy. We're gonna go for something a little more modern for the next uh, the next one. Heads. Or tails, what would what, you what? heads, uh, calm trues, tails, chairlift. Oh, tails, we're doing chairlift. We're doing chairlift. Cool, that's that's interesting. I have I have a lot of thoughts about their their newest newest album, not new anymore, but newest album. That's great. So, next time, guys, we're covering from the United States, we're covering electronica duo chairlift. That's going to be interesting. That is going to be interesting. So, fellow listener at home, what do you think of the Bee Gees? What do you think of Chairlift? What do you think of the Alan Parsons Project, which our dad has still not listened to the episode of? Really? I was like, how could you? Dad, do you even love us? (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) Have you even watched an episode of Beast Wars Wednesday? (laughs) (laughs) 
What do you think of any of the bands we covered or any bands you think we should cover? There's a couple ways of getting a hold of us. The first is our website, musicazpodcast.com. You can sign on there. You can sort by genre. You can look up your fabulous co-hosts. You can also check out our Facebook page, Music A to Z Podcast. Join the conversation. See what sort of fun and interesting things that we post occasionally. Yeah, we usually post pictures of uh, concerts and stuff that we go to, you know. We're going to one late next month. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Band we covered here, the Go Team. Mm-hmm. We also have a Twitter account, at Music A Z Podcast, at Music A Z Podcast, so you can see the fun things that we tweet and retweets and retweets. And please, please search us up on iTunes and go to Rate and Review and Rate and Review this podcast. It uh, really helps the podcast reach a broader audience the more ratings and reviews that it has. And you know what? My poor friends at Crash Chords Podcast, they desperately need some ratings and reviews as well. So if you are in the mood to share the love and spread the love, take a minute and a half out of your day, go to iTunes, podcasts in the store, find... Music A to Z podcast and Crash Chords podcast. Rate and review us both. Unless you only have negative things to say, then never mind. Yeah, then forget about it. Don't forget about it. <clears throat> yeah. Forget we said anything. Yeah. Why'd you even get this far? You've gone this far? <laughs> you hated every <laughs> minute like, of it? Two hours? You just <laughs> love the Bee Gees. <laughs> like, I just want to hear... Like, we keep talking about... They're like, oh, I hate their opinions. Those are all, all the songs they like are the ones I hate. <laughs> and all the ones they hate are the ones I like. <laughs> I can't stand this podcast. <laughs> Disco Ben, we're calling you out, man. Give us some feedback, will you? So let us know what you think of the podcast. Or or at the very <laughs> least, just list just list two of your favorite songs and why they're your favorites. Mm-hmm. Just two. You can do it. Hey, if you want to check me out, go to DougJCFerguson.com and uh, check out all the things I do there. Also check out my YouTube channel, Moving Underscore Pictures with a K, and uh, see what I'm doing on the, on the online world of YouTube. I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe because... Recently, it's gotten harder than ever to monetize stuff on YouTube, and my my, my goal line just got a lot further. So, <laughs> please check it out. Cool. Well, anything else, Captain? No. All right. No, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. <laughs> well, then I'm going to close this out by saying Music A to Z podcast is hosted by Stephen and Doug Ferguson, and is produced by me, Stephen Ferguson. You should check out our other works at DougJCFerguson.com and StephenGCFerguson.ca. Crazy, 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 crazy